is part two of You Say You Want a Revolution. And just in time, because Kevin Sinan was starting to drum up a revolution in the prayer room. So this will stop it. Everybody has to wear tie-dyed shirts made by his grandparents in this revolution. I mean by his grandchildren. His grandchildren. Right? And they're expensive. (laughs) Romans 13. Sorry for starting a little late. No one knew about this road thing. So let's take a couple moments of silent preparation. Father, I ask for the grace to rightly divide the word of truth to the edification of this flock. And as a member of this flock, I thank you, Father, that you have made us. We are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. It is you that has made us and not we ourselves. And I thank you that we're following the lamb as Revelation teaches. And he's leading us to many oases, many places where we can drink fully of the water of life. And our lamb is also our shepherd, even as our priest was the offering that took away our sin. May we be truly attentive to your word tonight, to the scriptures that give us hope and encouragement to the Holy Spirit who directs us in the way that we should go. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. The subject is still generally God-approved livingness, which includes the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26 brackets the entire epistle of Romans with that idea, the obedience of faith or faithfulness. And within a dynamic state or sphere of love, divine love. And so Galatians helps us, comes in, chimes in, and says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but a faithfulness that works by love. This is God-approved livingness, and within God-approved livingness, not external to it, but within the sphere of it, there is subjection to civil authorities is mandated by the apostle to every soul. We saw a connection last night between Romans 12.1 and Romans 13.1. There's a seamless continuity there. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Here, every soul Both body and soul are figures of speech called synecdoches or pars pro toto, where a part is given for the whole. When Jesus said, into your hands I entrust my spirit to the Father, he was entrusting all of his being to the Father, not just his spirit, but his body, his soul, his spirit, his entire being. 
When we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, we do the same thing. It's not just our bodies, but our whole being. In Romans 13, 1, every soul, that means every person, every saint in the context, every believer in Christ, must be subjected to the governing civil authorities. This is a profound statement for us. And last night I led off with the idea of being what it means to be under the wrath of God or have the wrath of God be upon us when people are disobedient to this God-approved livingness, whether they call themselves Christians or not. The wrath of God is on them in the sense that it prevents success in any of the endeavors that a person puts forth. It prevents success in anything that is motivated by anger, wrath, malice, slander, cursing. In other words, anything under the enslavement of sin and complicity with sin. And so when anger motivates a revolution, violent revolution against governmental authorities that God has established, then that's doomed to failure. In fact, it's doomed to the wrath of the state, the wrath of the military, the wrath of the law enforcement or whatever power there is, which is called the sword. And so we have this, and I want you to see this tonight, and we may hit a pretty big section of Scripture or a couple sections of Scripture in order to illustrate this. This Romans 13 fits, 13, 1 to 7 is a much belabored, beleaguered kind of a passage in the Scripture. It's difficult for some people to get around it, but we're finally ready to attack it for the second time or tackle it for the second time. And this fits within two passages that deal specifically with the dynamic state of love. And so this whole idea of subjection to civil authority and non-retaliation, in fact, in benevolence toward civil authorities, and as 1 Timothy 2.1 says, praying for those in authority, they all fit, this entire policy fits within the dynamic state of love. We'll see that in Romans twelve nine through 21 that precedes this, we have the dynamic state of love. Let love be without hypocrisy, it begins, and it goes all the way through describing the functions of believers in the dynamic state of love. But you'll also note, this is what fascinates me, and I want you to get this point above all, that from 13, 8 to 10... There is also the dynamic state of love. Owe no one anything, Paul says. At the end of Romans 13, 1 through 7, he says, Owe or pay what's due. Pay your taxes. Pay tribute to whom tribute is due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. George Harrison's song, The Tax Man, was kind of a rebellious song, but he still paid his taxes. The Beatles paid about a 90% tax in Britain. And so he wrote a song called Tax Man. He says, someday they'll tax the pennies on the eyes of corpses. But he still paid the taxes. You, you pay taxes to whom taxes are due. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Tolls to whom tolls are due. Tariffs. 
That's a big word now. To whom tariffs, tariffs are due. And then he says, Fabas, fear, which means respect. To whom respect is due. And then time, honor, to whom honor is due. There's all these lists of obligations to pay what's due to certain people within the context of civil, governmental, civic, you might want to call it authority, even in the Roman Empire at the time. It also applies to us. But then Paul says, leave no debt outstanding. That's how we should go into Romans 8. Leave no debt outstanding. In other words, don't leave a debt unpaid, but of all things, pay only this debt. Leave this debt unpaid, meaning that you have to pay it every day to love one another. There it is. Romans twelve nine to 21, the dynamic state of love, which is the head of the spear of God-approved livingness. So Romans 13, 1 to 7 isn't just some section we cut out of our Christianity and say, well, that's divine establishment laws or that's something we do that's not really part of the spiritual life. It's in every single way a part of what we call the spiritual life. It is something executed within the sphere of a dynamic state of love. Look again how it's bracketed. The whole policy, in fact, Romans 12, 9 is actually a headline. It, it starts a new section. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. That means don't let your love just be for a few people and then be a hypocrite and don't love other people. Jesus said the same thing. Paul is following the same spirit that Jesus gave in Matthew 5. Don't just greet or salute with loving greeting or friendly greeting those who you are of your own clique, your own group, but... Greet others, greet strangers, greet others with the same kind of love because you're, be like your heavenly father. Be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect because he makes the rain to shine not just on the Jewish Christians in Rome or the rain to fall rather on the Jewish Christians in Rome but the Gentile Christians in Rome. We could make an accommodation to the situation in Rome. He doesn't make the sun rise just on Jewish Christians in Rome, but on all the Christians in Rome. In fact, on the evil and the good. His love isn't hypocritical. Hypocritical love is love that's only shown for a clique or group or a familial group or within a bias of group bias. And so Romans 13, 1 to 7 is actually part of the dynamic state of love, the God-approved livingness that is prescribed in Romans. So I'm going to translate a lot, a big chunk of this, and it'll be revised by the time we get it out to everyone in print. But Romans 13.1, every soul must be subjected to the governing civil authorities. This will be all my translation. For no authority exists except by God. Now, I want you to bear in mind, too, that the first part of this, you say you want a revolution, part one was last night. So that's, in fact, going to appear in the website already this week. Every soul must be subjected to the governing civil authorities, for no authority exists except by God. Here, there's a subjection to God through civil authorities, or God behind civil authorities. 
In Romans 12.1, there's a direct line of subjection right to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That that, that includes your whole being is clear from 1 Peter 4.19. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator, especially in times of difficulty. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. A prayer that we may pray is... Legitimate in every case, whether we're in difficulty or whether we're in prosperity, and I think it's more important to do it sometimes in prosperity, I commit or I entrust my entire being to you, Father. I entrust my soul to you. I entrust, I present my body to you. I'm all yours. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify God in my body, and I know that's only going to be done by divine will and divine action. For it is God in me, both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. And so there is a policy of non-retaliation, but it goes beyond mere non-retaliation. It goes into surprising, astonishing kindness, even to those who are unjust to us, even to those who are unkind, even to those who persecute. Jesus said it. Matthew 5 and 6, Paul is in the same spirit, though he speaks with a different tone, or a different language, not a different tone. So, no authority exists except by God and the powers that be. I use that idiomatic expression because I think it best translates it into the level of our own time. The powers that be, we call it, have been established in office by God for this reason. And a lot of that was clarified last night. So you want to know about the unreasonable application of authority? We hit it a little bit last night. For this reason, verse 2, and how you act under that unreasonableness, how you respond. For this reason, anyone who opposes the authority is resisting what God has instituted. Bear in mind that Paul is writing in the 50s A.D., Bear in mind that by 66, there will be a revolution, a violent one, instituted by Jews against Rome. It will end in a complete catastrophe, a catastrophe that can only be described by the use of catastrophic apocalyptic language, like the light of the sun going out, the moon turning to blood, stars falling from the heavens, and the rest of the tremendously catastrophic cosmic language that's employed by Jesus in Matthew 24, where he does not predict the end of the world, but the end of a Jewish violent revolution. Bear in mind, Paul is talking in that time to saints in Rome. So all of this has to be borne in mind in the light of A.D. 70. Jesus forbid such action, told, told Peter, resheath that sword that you drew, because everyone who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Everyone who takes it up in a revolution, is what he's prophesying, will perish by it. That explains the whole idea of Gehenna, of bodies and souls being thrown, or entire people being thrown into the lake of fire, which is simply the garbage dump in the ditch around Jerusalem where the revolutionaries died and were bear or thrown to be incinerated, not a post-mortem hell. But I think we established that in previous teachings. 
For this reason, anyone who opposes the authority, speaking of the civil authority, at that time it was Rome, is resisting what God has instituted. Moreover, those who oppose it will bring judgment upon themselves. For the governing authorities are not a cause of fear to benevolent, but to harmful deeds. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do good, and you will have its praise. For government, verse 4, is God's servant to you for your good, for your benefit. But if you do evil, in the context this means a retaliation-type revolutionary action toward the governing authorities. And this is not forbidding what we call protests, peaceful protests, Christian involvement in political things. This isn't saying you can't do that at all. He's talking about and stopping the flow of a violent revolution that's already building in Judea. He doesn't want Christians to be involved. Do good and you'll have its praise. Government is God's servant, verse 4, to you for good. But if you do evil, then fear, for it is not for nothing that it carries the sword. Every governmental authority has the power of a military, the power of defense, the power of law enforcement, and it's a sword is a metaphorical way of describing it. And it doesn't bear or carry the sword in vain. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath. I led off with that subject last night, and here it is. Brings wrath on the one who does evil. What does it mean that the wrath of God is upon the one who is disobedient to the Son of God? It means they are perishing. Romans, or rather John 3.36 should be explained in the light of John 3.16. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. He obviously gave his son to save the world. But not only does he save the world, ultimately, he gives every person the opportunity to live the life of the coming age now. And the alternative is to perish. And perishing is nothing more and nothing less than continuing under enslavement to the power of sin. And complicity with sin, and then experiencing the results of it, which is wrath. So anything that is motivated by human anger, which we're supposed to put off all anger, wrath, and malice in Ephesians 4.31, when we put off the old man in 4.24, when we put off the old man with his deeds in Colossians 3.9, We put off the lie that rationalizes our anger. We put off anger specifically as that which really characterizes the the passing age and the policy of revenge and vindictiveness and all the anger that we're seeing raise its head in almost every quarter of our society today. Even to the point where, as I mentioned last night, angry birds. So, This is not to say that a Christian had to subscribe to or to endorse that which we have studied in Revelation as the Caesar cult. The Christian was not to obey the mandates to worship the Caesar as God 
or to worship Rome and the famous wordplay in Rome, and it was actually, it could have been billboarded in a lot of places. Rome was, the goddess of Rome is Roma. And you put the letters back and you have Amor, the goddess of love. And so to worship Rome is to worship the goddess of Rome, Roma Amor, which is Rome is love, when in fact we know that God is love and he sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. And so if this, we, the Caesar cult demands that you worship Caesar as divinity, you don't violently resist Caesar, you just say no. You worship God. And as a result, you may be persecuted. In fact, you would be in this case. We haven't gotten quite to that extreme yet in the United States of America, but it's coming. Where we will be mandated by certain legislations not to do what we're doing right now. Well, what would happen if someone said, you can't meet and teach the word of God? I would meet and teach the word of God. I might do it a little more surreptitiously, secretly, but we'd do it and take the consequences. It is better to obey God than men, as Acts 5.29 all the way to 41 enucleates. It's better to obey God than men. So this is not to say that a Christian had to subscribe to or endorse the Caesar cult. Paul gives examples of what he means. Pay taxes, pay tariffs, pay tolls, pay respect. Be benevolent if you can. Churches even being benevolent to local governments and local communities is important. And so, this has already been strictly forbidden. No one is being commanded to subscribe to or endorse the Caesar cult and worship the Caesar as God, as Soter, Savior, or as Deliverer. So, Paul has already strictly forbidden this with the appeal for the saints to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. As Jesus said, render to Caesar what's due to him, but render to God what's due to him. If you present your bodies as an act of worship to God, then Caesar doesn't have that right. You don't owe Caesar that. And if Caesar demands that, you don't give it. He's not calling for violent revolution, but he's not calling for sycophantic, fawning, servile, servile flattery either. So... It is this that constitutes our reasonable and logical acting out of worship, and that is presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. That's our logical acting out of worship to continue from that moment on. It's logical to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice by the mercies of God. It is our priesthood by which we serve and worship God. And so, once again... Neither is the apostle advocating sycophancy or a fawning servile flattery to those powers. There's nothing here that discourages peaceful political involvement on the part of Christians. They can even run for office if they want. Nor is there any encouragement to think that since God has placed these leaders in power, that they are his prophets and they should be followed as God's people follow prophets and believe everything they say. There is not an endorsement of Rome's depraved policies here at all. 
in Romans 13, but simply the assumption that until the parousia, until Christ comes and rules in righteousness and grace in all the universe, until that happens, God has instituted human civil governments to prevent the rule of chaos and the utterly unruly rule of anarchy. The trend of anarchy rearing its head now is just simply a trend of human anger. Anarchy, despite its supposed purpose to break up all authority, becomes a vicious, violent authority and tyranny in itself. Mob rule always descends to the lowest common denominator, which is not humanly acting, but bestially acting. So Romans 13.5, Therefore it is necessary to submit, not only because of your fear of wrath, and that's a proper fear. We, the crudest analogy I can think of is you're traveling along a highway, blue and red lights appear behind you. You look down at your speedometer. You look at the speed limit sign. It says 70. You're doing 105. You should fear you're going to get a large ticket and some points knocked off your insurance at least. And if you've been imbibing, well, you're pretty screwed. So you have the right and you have it's common sense. You should fear. But if you're going 70 and this guy's behind you, he's going to pass you and get somebody else. He's on, he's on somebody else's tail. You don't have to fear. If you're acting as believers, as many did back then, wealthy believers actually donated great amounts of money and time to the building of Roman roads. What do you think that got them? It got them praise from the Roman authorities. But then there's Barabbas and the zealots who were killing the Roman magistrates. What do you think that got them? It got them the sword. Got them the wrath of the state. It's just a lot of this, we might almost be tempted to call it common sense, but it isn't. It's Paul saying, stay within the realm of the dynamic state of love, even toward, you know what he's saying? You even love Caesar. You even love your rulers. You even love those in power. That doesn't mean you like them. It doesn't mean you're a sycophant. It doesn't mean you've got to go to rallies and wave flags every time they show up. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means you pray for them. You wish the best for them. You pray the same thing you'd pray for anyone else, that they would be enlightened as to the knowledge of the grace and the mercy of God. And that their policies would, in fact, reflect the wisdom of wisdom personified, Jesus Christ. The result will be that Christians can carry on peacefully under a system of free enterprise, as 1 Timothy 2.1 says and following, and evangelism can take place in a wise and courteous way because it's God's will that all men be saved, that all human beings be saved. 1, Corinthians, 1 Timothy rather 2.1 to 7 is a wonderful passage. So there's not, this is not an endorsement of Rome's depraved policies in Romans 13, but simply the assumption that until the Prusia, God has instituted human civil governments to prevent the rule of chaos and the unruly rule of anarchy. 
Romans 13, 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit not only because your fear of wrath, meaning retaliation on resistors, violent resistors, but also because of your conscience so that you can live with yourself. Barabbas and his guys had to go hide in hideouts after they made attacks on Roman legions. They had to go, their conscience was constantly bothering them. You can't live with yourself. So, because of your own conscience. So, that's kind of what Jesus was saying to his disciples. He said, tell me, does the king have to pay taxes? And he was referring to himself as the king because they were asking if he paid taxes and if his disciples paid taxes. And Jesus said, does a king pay taxes? And they said, well, no. And he says, pay them anyways. We don't want to offend them. In other words, let's not offend them for the wrong reason. If we're going to offend the powers that be someday, it'll be by the preaching of the gospel or by a policy of love, not by evading taxes, not by tax evasion. Tax evasion may save you some money, but your conscience will plague you. You see, and you can't live. What, what good is it? I'd rather be broke for the rest of my life and have a clear conscience than to be rich, but have a conscience that plagues me because of how I got that riches and who I had to step on to get there. Any time in the any any time, give me a loaf of bread and a one-room hovel rather than a mansion and a bad conscience where you have to take all kinds of stuff to sleep. Therefore, do it also because of your conscience. I put that, I would say that, so you can live with yourself, knowing that you're not resisting God's servant. For because of this, you pay taxes. I know that's not a popular thing to say. That's why I'm glad we got a small crowd tonight. Because of this, you pay taxes. Now, are death taxes fair? Absolutely not. Inheritance taxes, no. Income taxes, no, they're not fair. That's your money. I don't believe that's fair, but I'm not going to start a revolution. You know what I'm going to do? Pay them. I've, I can't even imagine. I've paid enough income taxes in my life to make most of you rich here tonight. I pay them. And in some states, if your parent dies, you get an inheritance. They've already taxed the inheritance for them, but they tax it for you. By the time the beast of government gets done, they've devoured a lot of stuff. But what's that mean? It means tough. Pay taxes. God will bless you. If you're generous, it comes back to you. If you give somebody a tip... And it's generous, and it goes past the 15 or 18%. Maybe you give 30 sometimes if you're inclined. That's good. It'll come back to you. It always does. Generosity always comes back if it's God-directed. Pay taxes. Don't worry about it. And Jesus was having a little fun with Peter. He said, you know what? You don't have the money for it? Cast in a line, pull out a fish, there'll be a shekel in his mouth. Pay for you and me. Now, whether he did that or not is not the issue. The point is, let's be carefree about it. Our source isn't the government. Our source is God. 
People act as if the source of their happiness is the government, which is why, A, on the one side, they hate the president, and on the other side, they love the president too much. The president becomes too much to everybody because they view, in the measure that you view whoever's elected as that which is going to determine your whole life, that's the measure that you'll either be elated or really angry. And so it's pathetic on both sides because it shows that trust is placed in political leaders rather than in God, and you incur the curse of trusting in the arm of the flesh. Psalm 118 will teach you about that. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 7 teaches you all about that. There's way too much stock put in who lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It really, really, really doesn't matter that much. It really doesn't. Not in the light of the word of God. So Paul gives examples to make us know what he's talking about here. The subjection has specific instructions to it. Because of this, you pay taxes. Since people in the government are God's ministers who are serving God in what they do. You say, yeah, but they're terrible sinners. Well, who isn't? Even pastors are sinners. I know that's hard for you to believe, but we are. You'd have to decide, am I God? I have to decide, my, am I God's minister? Am I a minister of God? And I have to be bold and confident and say, yes, I am. But am I a sinner? Do I, am I perfect? No. But I'm a servant of God. So are people who serve him in government. They may not even believe him as Savior, but they're God's servants. Whether you like it or not, whether you like them or not, that's not the point. Verse 7, pay everyone what's owed to them. And he makes specific reference here what he's talking about. Taxes to whom taxes are due. The Glossa Ordinaria, which I used a little bit last night, is an, is an ancient medieval commentary that gathers up a lot of sources. They say in their gloss there, they said, this is the proof of your subjection. The proof of your subjection Paying taxes, what's owed? Tariffs and tolls to whom tariffs and tolls are due. Respect to whom respect is due. There was a huge thing about this in the 70s when Nixon did all those nasty things and people started to malign him and people who defended him said, I respect the office. Of the president. I will not demean, degrade, or slander the office of the president. Respect was paid to a failing leader because respect is paid to the office. Tariffs and tolls to whom tariffs and tolls are due. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor. If you don't like this, and I think a lot of believers don't like this, and they don't do this, and they rebel against this because they view the state or the leaders of the state as their source. If we pay taxes, even if they're unfair and even if they're great, it's better to have a good conscience about it and to trust God. He's our source, not people, not the government. 
And that what I that's what I think is the great sinfulness of socialism because again and I'm not against I'm not say, speaking for or against candidates but the philosophy of socialism is a confident assurance in the state as the source that's what I object about in it there's a lot of things I object about in capitalism there's a lot of true greed that capitalism breeds And so there's a lot of bad in distorted capitalism. But I'm not going to ever tell you who I'm voting for or if I'm voting. I would probably say I'm going to vote. I think it's a responsible thing for citizens to do. But when pastors go on bandwagons and tell people they got to vote for this candidate or that candidate, they are, I think, overstepping their bounds as pastor teachers. We should kind of labor so that people don't know. That's why I said last time, I'd, in 2016, I didn't trumpet Trump and pillory Hillary, nor did I pillory Trump and trumpet Hillary. I never will do that. I think, it's, I think it is very unattractive of pastors to do so. I don't care who they are. I don't think it's the right thing to do. And honor to whom honor is due. As usual, Jesus summed it up sweetly. Pay Caesar what's due to Caesar. And to God what's due to God. What's due to God? What's owed to God? Worship. Worshipful gratitude. When the command worship God, Revelation 19.10, Revelation 22.9, when the command to worship God is issued or present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, which is another way of saying worship God, when that command is usurped by Caesar as Theos or Caesar as God, it is better to obey God and not Caesar. That's not worship isn't due to Caesar. Respect is. Perhaps even honor is. Taxes are to his representatives, tributes. But worship isn't. The final ultimate confidence does not belong to him. My body doesn't belong to Caesar. My soul can be subject to the powers that be. But my entire being belongs to God. And even when we refuse to obey Caesar by choosing to obey God, even this is not violent resistance or retaliation. The rallies that you saw of hatred and anger and vicious, malicious slander by certain people in in show business, for example, that borders on violent retaliation and that issues in terrible consequences on the slanderer. That's not peaceful protest. That's an expression of children acting out naturally in wrath. And those people are not to be imitated. In fact, those people, I think that kind of policy is to be recoiled against by Christians. It's vicious It's hateful, it's the old man, it's the fruit of the old age that's passing away. It's the very definition 
of rebellion and enmity against the cross of Christ. So then, when you choose to obey God, not Caesar, even this is not violent resistance or retaliation, only insistence on obedience to the one who gave the power to Caesar rather than to the Caesar. It's remarkable how this passage in turn seamlessly returns, it never really left, to the command and the dynamic of love. And that's what I wanted you to see mainly tonight, Romans thirteen eight. Do not owe anything, meaning in the context he's already said you owe taxes, pay them. Don't he, what he's saying here is literally don't leave any debt outstanding. Don't leave a debt unpaid except for one that you have to pay in the future all the time, that you must always pay, and that's simply to love the other. Do not owe anything. Again, in the context, you should understand this as don't leave any debt outstanding except for this one because it's always owed. And so, do not owe anything, anyone anything except that of love to one another. For the one who loves the other, that's the key of true love. True love is love of the other. By other, it means somebody totally other than yourself. Not like you. Someone not like you. With likes not like your likes. With a dress and a style that's not like your dress and style with preferences that's not like your preferences with perhaps a foreign entity rather than someone close to you someone who is other than you God's love is for the other while we were still his enemies Christ died that's God's love it's for the other if love is only for those who love us back then the love is hypocritical It's not real love. It's pretentious. It's not Christian love. It's not the love of God poured out in our hearts, which Romans 5, 5 goes right in to describe as the love of God is when Christ died for the ungodly on behalf of the ungodly in Romans 5, 6. While we were still without strength, we had nothing we could give back to him. Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. That's all of us. Because scarcely someone, you see, you can find somebody, you can see them honored on military holidays. They die for somebody that's next to them in combat. They die for a good man. They die for a righteous person. You can find them. They're few and far between, but they're real and they're heroes. But God commended his love in that while we were still sinners, that means utterly other than him, Christ died. And while we were still his enemies, God reconciled us to himself. That's a love that you just can't find among human beings, period, except for the human being named the man Christ Jesus. And those in whom the Holy Spirit pours out that foreign kind of love. And then he goes on to say, and we've already looked at this, verse 9, for this, and the word for gar is used 140 times in Romans, so we get an idea that there's something that keeps on being, holding together as a coherent case. For this, he says, colon, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this word, love your neighbor 
as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the filling up or the totality of the law. And we'll get into other nuances of this verse, including the word anakephaleao in Romans 13.9 that's only used elsewhere in the entire scripture in Ephesians 1.10, which is the verse toward which all the mystery points. Loving the other includes loving the Caesar. God-approved livingness is still the subject. A faithfulness at work in the dynamic state of love includes a reasonable submission to the governmental powers that be. I find no problem with that at all. I'll say that again. A faithfulness at work in the dynamic state of love, which is God's love poured out in our hearts, includes a reasonable submission to the governmental powers that be. The passage in question having to do with the disposition of the saints towards civic powers or the powers that be, to use an idiom of speech, is within the sphere of and in the context of God-approved livingness. Christian groups that meet together in the swamps and shoot and plan on taking up arms against their government, that's not God-approved livingness. And when and if they do that, they're going to get thumped so hard They'll be buried in the swamp, or they'd be better off being buried in the swamp. So, I don't recommend you join any of those survivalist groups, really. It's not my recommendation. Or taking up arms against the United States of America. Don't recommend it. Submission to the powers that be, civic and political, legislative and executive in our case, is part of our function as priests to God. It falls under the rubric or the title of the obedience of faith. It's part of it. It's part of the operation of the believer in the dynamic state of love. And this can be shown not only by moving forward in the text of Romans the epistle, which we just did, to Romans 13, 8 to 10, moving forward from 13, 1 to 7 to 13, 8 to 10, what do we have? The dynamic state of love. But let, as we just observed, but also let's look back. And this is a big chunk of scripture. I just translated it without much commentary. And I'm going to close with this. Notice Romans 12, 9 leading up to 13, 1, where every soul is to be sub- subjected to the civic powers that be. Is 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy and the. Small comments on some of these things. Love is hypocritical if it is shown for the members of our clique or group, but not for the other, including the civic leaders. Recoil from evil, he says in verse 9. That means almost have a violent reaction in turning away from. It's kind of a play on words. Recoil from evil in the context means including violent revolution or revenge in this context, taking revenge, recoil from it. Cling to what is good. That's a better way or a more succinct way of saying be agents of benevolence and beneficence. Be benevolent people. 
Show familial affection. Philadelphia. Pastor Brown, you ought to love that one. Philadelphia. Show familial or family affection to one another. And I love to see that. I see that here all the time. It's a family affection. Doesn't mean you've got to call people brother and sister, but that's all right too. But it's family. And we are, you, it's not something you fake. And you don't have to call each other fam or family. It's just a, it's an affection that belongs within the, what we used to call the parlor. They call it the living room now. Well, everybody knows you live in whatever room you're in. But a parlor is from the French word parlay, where you sit and talk. Parlor. That's the kind of thing we have, the parlor. If I had my way, ultimately, I wouldn't retire from teaching in a thing like this. I would, re- I would move to a parlor situation, which isn't practical yet, but maybe it will be someday. So a parlor kind of family kind of love. You say, yes, but families have their spats. Yes, they're spats. They're family spats. It's Philadelphia. Show familiar affection to one another. Then it says, outdo one another in showing honor. I love the way he says this because it's a surprising, gracious thing because instead of competing to receive honor, which was happening among the groups there, that's the whole point. Instead of competing to receive honor, compete in giving it. Be diligent, not lazy. Be fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. That's have high energy. Be energetic and enthusiastic about serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. This is said elsewhere in the famous love poem, as we call it, as as it's called in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love rejoices in the truth. It says rejoice in hope. Simply says, be happy in the expectation of the reconciliation of all things in Christ. The recap of all things in Christ. You're supposed to do that. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Love is patient. Persist in prayer. That includes 1 Timothy 2, 1 and following prayer for those in authority. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. You may become aware of the need of a family of saints or of an individual. You can just contribute to their need without people really knowing you did it. Maybe not even them. Pursue opportunities to show affectionate receptivity to strangers. This is translated as hospitality, which meant a lot in the medieval situations there. If you watch the movie Lone Survival, you saw how much the hospitality meant to the people in Afghanistan. that They would take in an enemy and fight other people to protect their enemy in their get because of their tremendous respect for the guest concept, the, the friend guest. But instead of hospitality, I think we can have, and, and it is hospitality, there are people that have the gift of hospitality, as we've seen before. 
Some people can't have people to the house because maybe there's illness or maybe there's incapacity or that kind of thing. But I think what's being spoken of here that we can all do is to pursue opportunities to show affectionate receptivity to strangers. Someone comes to church. They look like, where am I? How did I get here? I don't know anybody. Well, you make sure that they know somebody. You. That's the point. Receptivity to strangers. Speak well of those who persecute you. What? The word is eulogize. Speak well of those who persecute you. What have you got to say about that guy who maligns you? Something good, let me think. But, <laughs> no. but it's, it is, speak, it is, it's shocking. It's a surprising policy of grace. Speak well of those who persecute you. Paul has to say it again. That's right. Speak well and don't curse them. And curse them doesn't mean just swear at them. It means say bad things, suggest things, do the innuendo about them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be sensitive to the needs of others. Now, rejoicing with those who rejoice means that somebody's truly happy about some blessing. And instead of saying, I was blessed too, which dismisses their blessing, rejoice with them. Pay attention to what they're rejoicing about. Or weeping with those who weep. Somebody's really in a hurting situation. Like today, I spoke to a woman who lost her husband suddenly. And I was just told about it. So I... I just went to her and I said I'm very sorry about you losing your husband she wept and said you were sent to say that it built me up and I'm not going to go up to her and say I heard you lost your husband well today I got a flat tire you know it's not it's about them it's about their grief right now you might even have greater griefs than someone's grief that you're seeing but they've expressed that grief somehow so you weep with their weeping and you might even have something worse to weep about in your own life but that you don't have to publicize that weep when they weep be sensitive to the needs of others verse 16 don't think highly of yourselves but associate with the humble that's people that are laid low that are hurting Oh, they're a drag on the party. Well, you should go to them and hang out with them so they're no longer a drag on your little party. I'm speaking, not, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just saying let's all do this. Don't repay evil with evil. Bad stuff with bad stuff. Strive to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. There's something that everybody recognizes as the honorable thing to do. The whole world recognizes it. Muslims, atheists, agnostics, even some anarchists, even Antifa people. There's something in which in the human condition that recognizes, well, that was the right thing to do. That was the honorable thing to do. Do it. Do things that are honorable in the, in the sight of everyone. Do the right thing. That's part of the faithfulness that works by love. I know this is intensely practical. You're not used to that, probably. As much as possible, meaning it's not always possible, as much as possible, as far as it depends on you, 
Live in peace with all people. Verse 19. Again, I'm not doing much in terms of comment on this or explanatory stuff because I want you to see how the dynamic state of love flanks this whole thing in Romans 13, 1 to 7. Otherwise, it seems disjointed. And that's what a lot of commentators say. It's disjointed. It doesn't belong here. In fact, maybe Paul didn't even write it. Of course he wrote it. And it's beautifully, seamlessly part of God-approved livingness. So, verse 19. Never seek revenge, loved ones, but leave a place for the wrath. He calls them agapatoi on purpose, loved ones. Don't seek revenge, loved ones. Remember, you're loved by God who didn't seek revenge on you for your sinfulness. Loved you. Never seek revenge, loved one. There goes about 22 movies I've loved up until now. But leave a place for the wrath. For it is written, I will repay Payback is my prerogative. That's not Bobby Brown. That's the Lord. It's my prerogative. You don't know that song? Do you know that song, Greg? Karen, do you know that song? Kevin, did you know? You did? You sang that, I remember, at the prayer meeting one night. But what does it mean? If you leave it up to God, do you think he's going to thump somebody or transform somebody? You see, if I take vengeance, I'm going to hurt you. But if I leave God's, leave God the prerogative for vengeance, you know what he'll do to my enemy? Something greater than I could do. He'll transform him. That's why he goes on to say, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing this, you will heap coals upon his head. That means you may lead him to repentance by your extraordinary, surprising kind of love. It doesn't mean you're going to pour hot coals on his head. You might burn his face right off. That's that's going to be awesome. No, it's saying that it'll have the same effect as doing that would to somebody if you were after vengeance, but it'll have the opposite effect. You may actually cause them to repent or convert or be transformed. You're You're in mimesis of God's love. This is a quotation of Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-two, And then finally in verse 21, don't be overcome by the evil, but overcome evil with a policy of surprising benevolence. That's my translation. It's not just overcome evil with good. It is overcome evil with a policy of surprising benevolence, an astonishing act of grace towards someone who expects the exact opposite. And does not this reflect God's love? While we were yet enemies, God took vengeance on us by condemning us to eternal salvation. It's an astonishing thing. So in closing, the dynamic and policy of love. Listen to this last paragraph. I wrote this at around 6.15. And then Kathy said, you can't get here. No, I'm only kidding. She warned me about the thing. The dynamic and the policy of love, which is a mimesis of God's love, and I say mimesis, not just imitation, because you can't imitate God. 
A mimesis is a manifestation of God's kind of love by the Holy Spirit in you, directing you. And so the dynamic and the policy of love in mimesis of God's love, which is outlined in Romans 5, 5 through 11, astonishing love for the enemy that reconciles the enemy, astonishing love for the sinner that dies for the sinner, astonishing love for the ungodly, which dies on behalf of them, astonishing love. This policy flanks the exhortation to submit to civic authorities. We got a huge, more enormous reason than other people would for this, and that's why it makes sense. This policy for the saint fits with the apocalyptic ethics, and ethics goes way beyond the common sense bias of people today, the general bias of people today the group ideological biases of people, which they rationalize their hatred, their vitriol, their slander, their maliciousness, and ultimately their revolution, including destruction, including murder, killing, thievery, destruction of property. So this policy for the saint fits with what we call apocalyptic ethics, a Christocentric ethic, a dynamic state of love, the obedience of faith, the power of hope. In short, GAL, God-approved livingness. At the turn of the ages, which is where we live, we live at the turn of two ages. The turn of the two ages has taken 2,000 years, but that's, the, that's how long the hinge has been swinging. The door has been swinging. The turn of the ages. We live in the turn of the ages. The night is far spent. The night's almost over. The passing age is almost over. The night is almost over. Romans 13, 11, and 12. 1 John 2, 8. The darkness is already passing away. The true light is already shining. The dawn of the age of Messiah has already been inaugurated with the Christ event, and it's going to become universal. That's where at the turn of the ages. And guess what the axis, A-X-I-S, is for the turning of the ages, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that defines our ethics. They are supernatural ethics. They are a divine apocalyptic ethic. It is Christ living in us. And as Jesus said, if my servants were of this world, they'd fight to keep me from my fate of the cross. They'd fight to keep me away from the Jewish leaders who were going to crucify me. My servants don't fight. My kingdom isn't from here. Our, our ethics aren't from here. They don't make sense in this age, the evil age. It doesn't make sense in the evil age. It makes perfect sense if we glory only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we understand the apocalyptic ethic of the turn of the ages. Once again, at this God-approved livingness at the turn of the ages must be understood. The turn of the ages has to be understood that the turn of the ages is on an axis that is none other than the cross of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for this, for this privilege tonight of seeing not only something that belongs in Romans, but belongs seamlessly, flawlessly in the continuity of the Pauline argument given here. 
because it's rooted in an apocalyptic ethic which is rooted in a crucified Messiah, a crucified Christ. For this we're very grateful, Father. Father. 